Again, good evening, everyone. Welcome. Christmas Eve is a holy day, holy evening that welcomes anyone and everyone, regardless of who you are or regardless of what your life might be like now. Last week, I was driving through my neighborhood and I came up behind someone driving a black Tesla that had a personalized Texas license plate that read F-R-M-C-A-L-I. F-R-M-C-A-L-I, from Cali. And immediately three thoughts went through my mind. Number one, I thought maybe it's Elon driving around my neighborhood. Then I thought maybe that person just doesn't want to make any friends here in Texas. And then I thought that's pretty much having that license plate. It's kind of the equivalent of putting a kick me sign on your own back and then walking around every day. Yet Christmas Eve is even for a person like that. And if that person is here tonight, or if you're watching online, please come and see me because you're welcome, but you need prayer. Going to live here in Texas. Again, this is an evening that welcomes everyone. And, and that's true of, it's seen especially true in all of our scripture readings tonight because they all involve characters for whom it is very evident and emphasized that they are welcomed by God. Almost everyone we'll read of not tonight are outcasts. The prophets, like Isaiah, the Old Testament prophets, they were unpopular people, very strange people, troubled, often followed after them. And then they're the shepherds. And we have very different notions about shepherds that the folks then would have had. They were some of the most mistrusted and disdained people in ancient Near Eastern society. They were the outcasts. They were people that were often nomadic and dirty, and they weren't even allowed to testify in court. And then there's the wise men, or three kings. These were pagan kings, and kings isn't a very good translation. Uh, They were wise men in one sense, but they were pagan astrologers. They're Their name in the scriptures is literally magi, from which we get our English word magic, because their art combined astrology and astronomy. Not only mapped the stars, they believed that there were messages to be received from the stars. And unlike the shepherds, they were rich and powerful people, advisors to kings, holding positions in royal courts. And so between them and the shepherds, you have the full breadth, the full spectrum of mankind there, high, rich high-class, rich, elite pagans, and then low-class, poor, marginalized Jewish people. And God comes to them, to them. And he sends his message of his coming to them. And what connects them both, the shepherds and the magi, is that in their own way, they were problem people, people with insurmountable, significant obstacles between them and God. Which raises the question, I think, what did they need for the problems that they faced to be solved? And what did they need for the obstacles before them to be overcome? What did they need? And what do you need this night to deal with the problems in your life or the obstacles that you face? Because they're still there, lingering, even on Christmas Eve, even in the midst of a service like this, even gathering with friends and with family tonight to celebrate and to eat and and to feast. Those problems still linger whatever it may be, the anxieties in your life, the fears that you face, the conflict that's in your marriage or in your family, that sadness that you can't shake, that greed, that vanity, those frustrations or those failures at work, they will be there for you when you go back or the arrogance and conceit that you carry along that always bruises people. And honestly, because you carry it, you really just don't care very much. And so what can save you from anything like that? W.H. Auden asked that very question on this very night. Uh, Last week in worship, Josh Keller mentioned 
Auden and Jordan Griesbeck several years ago in a sermon mentioned him. He's arguably the greatest English-speaking poet of the 20th century. And over the course of several months in 1941 to 1942, while Germany attacked Europe and Russia, and while the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and while Hitler crafted his final solution and his plan to exterminate the 11 million Jewish people in Europe, Auden wrote an oratorio which is a poem that's meant to be put to music. And it's entitled, For the Time Being, a Christmas oratorio. So for the time being, meaning for a time like I'm living in right now, for this time, for what's happening in the world right now and what's happening in my life. He wrote it because he's trying to make sense of what's going on in the world. And what's not only simply going on in the world, but what's going on in his own heart, all of the confusion that he found there. You see, Auden had recently returned to the Christian faith, which he had abandoned as an adolescent. And after leaving the faith, his life became very confused, very chaotic, completely unmoored. He moved to Berlin and fully gave himself over to the notoriously unhinged sexual practices and culture of that day in that city. And then his mother died. And then one of his lovers left him, leaving him shattered. And then somehow in the midst of all of that, God came back into his life and into that scene. And Auden is trying to make sense of it all in this oratorio. He's trying to make sense of the world around him, of his own life and of God and even of Christmas. And so in that oratorio, he writes this, just four lines. He asks, how could the eternal do a temporal act? The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Did you hear him? Nothing can save us that is possible. But the possible is what we typically turn to when the chaos of the world and the problems of our life hit. We turn to what is possible and practical and pragmatic, to what's tangible and easy and simple and and earthly and believe that those things, those things alone can save us. In fact, that's what we just read about In Isaiah chapter seven, turning to the possible for salvation. In Isaiah seven, we meet this king named Ahaz. He's the king of Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom of what used to be the united country of Israel, but a civil war has split the country. Now there's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's 735 BC, long time before Jesus shows up in the world. And there are these two foreign kings that are knocking on Ahaz's door. One is Rezin, the king of Syria, and the other is Pekah, the king of Israel. And everyone in Judah is afraid, including their king. Verse two says that the heart of the people shook like trees in the wind, Ahaz included. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah to him to say, do not be afraid. In verse four, he says, be quiet, stop talking, stop worrying, stop and do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. And then in verses 10 and 11, God tells Ahaz, ask me for a miracle. Ask me for a sign from heaven. It can be anything, anything that will assure you that I will come to you and I will save you. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven, meaning it can be anything. Ask me for the impossible and I will do it. And does he do that? Does he ask for the impossible? No, in fact, he says in verse 12, I will not, I will not ask for the impossible. And friends, that's all too often us. We prefer the possible also. And do you know what Ahaz eventually does? Well, we know from the rest of the Old Testament that he ends up asking another king, the king of Assyria, to come and to fight for him and to fight Rezin and Pekah for him, which this king eventually does. 
And so Ahaz doesn't ask for a miracle. He makes his own plans. He devises his own schemes. He, he marches out and fulfills his own ideas and his own supposed wisdom. And here's what's most dangerous. For a while, it works. For a while, what he devises under his own power and his own will and his own imagination, it works for a while. Assyria does defeat Rezin and Pekah. But then that king of Israel makes Ahaz a slave. He enslaves him in his own country. And Judah becomes little more than a vassal state and a pawn of Assyria with no freedom, with no sovereignty at all. And friends, we've all done that. We've all been Ahaz. We've all made his choice. With the problems that we face, we've all chosen what seems achievable, what seems controllable, what seems possible for us and our own power and our own strength to do. We do it with so many things, with our habits, those habits that are becoming addictions. We don't We cut back a little, maybe. We don't tell other people. We don't ask for help when we know that we're struggling. We do so with our marriages and the conflict in our marriages. We we follow our own heart and we listen to those people, those friends, those counselors, those people, whomever they may be, that will tell us what we want to hear as opposed to turning to God's word and to God's people who will tell us what we need to hear. We do it with our children as well. We focus on carving out a particular path for them that they can walk rather than focusing upon making them a particular and unique Christian people so that regardless of what path they find themselves on, they can walk it out. We do it with our work because we'll travel as much as necessary. We'll move wherever we're asked to move in order to climb to that next rung and to get that higher paycheck and that wealth and that ease and that comfort that we've been aiming at for so long. And then when we get it, When we get that wealth, it's always the newest and the next thing to buy or the newest and the next greatest place to go. And these are the things that we think will save us. These are the things that we think will set our heart right. They're tangible things and achievable things, practical, possible solutions to problems deep within our heart. And tonight of all nights, we need to listen to Auden. We need to listen to Isaiah. Because those things are too possible to deal with the depths of what our world faces and the depths that our souls face as well. Because we face greater kings than Rezin and Pekah. That's what these scriptures are telling us tonight. We face the spiritual kings of sin and death. And with them, nothing that is possible can save us. We need a miracle. And that's what God promised. And he promised Ahaz a miracle, even when Ahaz wouldn't ask. Verse 14, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. So from Ahaz, we learn that even when we won't be faithful to God, God will be faithful to us. He will do the impossible. And that's what we're reading of tonight because that's what he's done. That's what we're celebrating, that nothing possible can save us. And he's done the miraculous for us, for you, for me. The eternal has done the temporal act. The infinite has become a finite fact. God has taken on human flesh. He hasn't simply taken on human flesh and bore our frame. He's also entered into the human predicament. He's entered into our sin and our death. He was born into this world in order to die on a cross, the forgiveness of our sins, driven by the insatiable divine love that he has for you, for you. And so he came to defeat all of that which you cannot defeat and to set your heart right, to eventually set our entire world to right. And so tonight of all nights, give yourself to him. Open up your heart and give yourself to the miracle that we who must die demand.
Open your heart to these lessons that we're reading. Sing these carols. Actually sing these carols and rejoice because this night is for you. Whomever you are, this night is for you and for your salvation. Amen. We pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would pour out your grace upon us, that we might see you and hear you. And, and not simply see you with our eyes and hear you with our ears, but, but see you and hear you with our very hearts as we read these lessons, as we sing these songs. May we know that you have come to us, that you have come for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.